0: Hello and welcome to Listen Carefully, I'm your host Nathan Jolly, and my guest today is Alexander Gow, formerly of Oh Mercy. Yesterday he released In the Grip of Something, which is the first single from his debut solo record Dizzy Spell, which will be out in October. we we'll chat about his new music and his old music, enjoy. So Dizzy Spell is the new record. What made you decide to release this under your own name as opposed to Oh Mercy or even Perfect Moment? Mm,
1: um, I guess I always planned on recording under Oh Mercy in my 20s and figured that when I hit 30, I'd probably feel like doing something different and I was right. And so when I turned 30... <laughs> um. You know, well, shortly after, I suppose, the lockdowns hit and that felt like a good time to make like a a kind of bombastic and ridiculous bedroom disco record, (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know. (laughs) um, A a guy that has never ventured into a nightclub was all of a sudden dreaming of... of frequenting nightclubs during lockdown and I had to get it out of my system. And so once I did get that out of my system, that perfect moment record, which I love, um, and started writing conventional singer-songwriter songs, um, which is, I figure, what I'm best at, yeah, a decision had to be made as to whether it was Oh Mercy or Alexander Gow. And um, as predicted in my early mid-twenties, I did feel different and I felt like my writing was a lot more ref- refined and i in general i i feel very like a very different person um to the person i was in my 20s like most people in their mid 30s feel um and so uh with that in mind i wanted to be the beneficiary of a fresh start you know and that means i can establish a sound and an aesthetic and uh a voice and yeah. And it all feels new and I don't feel like I'm beholden to kind of any... I mean, I I was about to say any past, um, you know, musical or visual missteps or, you know, shitty interviews on YouTube, but they're all still up there anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I don't want to give you the wrong impression. Like, I, I am very proud of what I did previously, but it just the, the fresh start is, was appealing. Uh, it feels like adult music and I figure it's time to stop being a coward and just use my own name, you know? <laughs> Yeah, well, you put out five
0: records before you were thirty, which is pretty good going.
1: Yeah, I um, I, I I went with the uh, quantity over quality um, <laughs> method. <laughs> um, so this new album, you
0: recorded it on an old four-track in like a terrace house. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I actually recorded it and wrote it in the room that I'm speaking to you from. Oh wow! Um, yeah, to my right is this wonderful tape machine. I think it might be a bit of a no-name brand. Perhaps that's the case. I I figure, um, you know, when tape was the only medium that people were using to record themselves, obviously there was plenty of demand. So, um, you know, every Dick and Harry was probably making decent tape machines back there and selling them, and this is just one of them. Um, You know, it's not one of those storied brands that you could look up and find out that, you know, I feel like there was a time there where every recording studio I went into had a microphone or a desk or a tape machine that Jimi Hendrix used. <laughs> so <laughs> Jimi Hendrix probably definitely didn't use this one. Um but it's uh yeah, nineteen seventies four track MCI tape machine. And four tracks tape machines are, are pretty um like primal. Like the I think the tech by the nineteen seventies, I think people were manufacturing eight I know they were manufacturing eight tracks tape machines if not 16 and people were figuring out clever ways to to link them up and um but basically the fewer tracks on the tape machine the fewer tracks can be represented in the recording until you start doing clever tricky um process which is called bouncing down or committing to ideas and taping over the top of it which is which is a sound in itself but anyhow um did you do that? Like, did you have yeah. to kind of
0: commit during the mix, go, well, I
1: suppose mm-hmm. the drums are
0: set, so that's done.
1: That, yeah, exactly. So you obviously understand how that works, um, Nathan. Um, so once, like, let's say one microphone equals, it's not quite this, but like for the simplicity sake, one microphone equals one channel or one instrument cable equals one channel. More or less, that's how it works. Yeah. So I would have had one microphone for my voice, one microphone for the acoustic guitar, one microphone for the piano, and... Um, and one microphone for the drums, which is basically what, what happened. And then so, all right, well, I want to put bass. I want to include bass. That's a fifth track And tambourine. That's a sixth track, maybe a harmony, seventh track. Uh, and in order to introduce those extra tracks, you have to just commit to the original recording. So if that's a bit out of tune or out of time uh, or too loud or too quiet, that you're stuck with that. And that's actually... And, and purposeful, like, and intentional. Uh, I think in the 60s, they were probably, they wished they had the technology to avoid those types of commitments. In fact, it, probably it's more of like a, they would have seen it as a compromise, you know? Yeah. Whereas instead of a compromise, it's a bit, for me, it was a bit of a virtue of necessity. So I was thinking that if I'm going to make this largely acoustic record and with what I'm calling conventional, like traditional singer songwriting, I, I want it to be minimal and I want it to be intimate. So I force myself to use very few tracks. And if I want to engage in, in pushing the, 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 the tape machine past the four tracks, then I'm going to have to make these what, as I said, in the 60s would have been compromises, but what I'm going to call, you know, the, the virtue of necessity and go, hey, that's just how it sounds and, and carry on and don't go over the top because it gets tricky and confusing. And so, yeah, it was a fully analog recording. And that suited the style of songs I was writing, that, like I said, intimate, purposeful uh, songwriting. And, and it was also just like a way that I could get this done in my time because it's, I'm lucky enough to live in this rundown terrace house and I rent two rooms. Uh, and one of them is my music room and I have a piano and an acoustic guitar and I could just wander down here on the weekends and make the record in my own time, which is exactly what I did. Did you find having those limitations
0: made you less or more nervous about performance? Because I suppose you'd have to bounce, as you said, if you want harmonies, you also had pedal steel on there. You would have to bounce basically the rhythm together and then that's locked in
1: yeah exactly so that's exactly how it works so you've got you know you bass and your drums on one track and you've got your treble instruments on another like an acoustic guitar and a pedal steel or the violin when i had the row in a wise play the fiddle um as for the nerves listen you know how i mentioned that i felt i'm not sure if i said this but i definitely feel i feel more i feel very comfortable uh, i'm 35 i I don't feel like I have anything to prove to myself or others at the moment. I, I feel healthy and I feel like, um, you know, I like myself a bit more and, I, and I'm confident in my writing. And with all that in mind, I was just like, I wasn't so stressed about the takes. I know my limitations as a musician. I'm not overly competent at the guitar. I get by at the piano. I enjoy writing on the piano, um, but I get by. And so, and so I knew I I know my own limitations as well as the limitations of the tape machine, and I suppose that's kind of what frames the entire record that that idea of being limited. Um, but like lots of my favourite artists, there's the they have you know I share those limitations with some of my favourite artists, and there's beauty in that. And I just hoped that that the integrity of the songwriting and the performances would that would communicate that that beauty. Um, and I think mostly. It, Largely it did I mean you'd be the judge of that But what I was hoping to achieve I think I, I achieved it um, And as for my performances You know you'll hear weird kind of out of tune things And things that are moving around tempo wise But geez as long as the song was um, At the front of the stage with the spotlight I, I think I kind of You can get away with a lot of stuff If the behind the scenes stuff is a little untidy Yeah so, uh, I mean every
0: Beatles song speeds up
1: And it's recorded on four track. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Well, exactly right. I remember um, when I was when whenever that wonderful film Donnie Darko came out, which had a cool soundtrack with you know like um, Joy Division and some other kind of new wave bands and post punk bands on it. And that guy um, Gary Jules did a cover of Tears for Fears, Mad World. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, which is a really cool cover. um, And Tears for Fears are a very cool band, I think. Anyway, I remember reading a review <laughs> and it was just like, and, and they were kind of, they were saying how terrible it was, which I disagree in. But I remember that um, this particularly tiresome review towards the back end of it was like, and if you if you whack a metronome on next to it, it's not even in time. <laughs> God. And I was just like, how far we've come. And I knew that then, like, what was I, 15, 16 or something? I was like, that doesn't feel right. No. you know. Anyway. <laughs> No, here, so, no, no metronome. <laughs> I took the Gary Jules approach. You did, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I like that it's also like your first Oh Mercy record was basically recorded in a bedroom, wasn't it?
1: Oh, that's true. Yep. Back to the bedroom. Um, yeah, it's a nice, yeah, full circle thing. Good point. I hadn't, that hadn't occurred to me. Yeah, that's cool. Um, back then, that's so funny though, because despite being in a bedroom setting, this bedroom is slightly larger, but we were using like. Um, me, uh, me, my songwriting partner at the time, and my high school buddy Tom Savage, and producer musician M- Miles Wharton from the Panics. We made that together, and Miles basically making our demos because we almost like taken done our first shows with the Panics, um, lucky us. Uh, I messaged them on MySpace because they were my favourite band. That first record of theirs, "Sleeps Like a Curse," I just adored. And they moved to Melbourne. I said, "Come and see us play." They took us on tour. Miles said, that "I'd record your demos," and ended up being very good at his job. So that, the, that those recordings became our first album. But the point I'm trying to make is, was like um, that was deep Pro Tools days. <laughs> very di- very digital is all I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and ch- very cheap. Cheap direct record, like DI direct input electric guitars. And we um, mostly sampled an electric drum kit that my cousin gave me that he bought from a garage sale. And so, which is kind of why it sounds like a mixture between 60s Lounge Records and In Excess. (laughs) Um, I didn't realize there was a drum machine on that record. Is that the whole thing? Yeah, um, not in the way that you might think of it in that cool kind of like 808 or whatever kind of way. It was like actually one of those horrible um, electronic drum drums with all the different pads that you'd set up and and you hit it and like with the really horrible sounds on it um all that stuff yeah Yeah. um but what miles did to we um we rented a cheap studio for like an hour and we went in there and we he bashed out well in fact a mixture between him and, and another high school friend pete mcdonald bashed out um some takes, and he just cleverly edited everything to kind of combine that that that, that the two sounds. But yeah, definitely, there's like a twenty dollar um, digital drum machine all, all over that record, and uh, and now here I am on, on this beautiful analog tape machine with um, vintage guitars and pianos. How how far I've I've come.
0: <laughs> so for your second record, you produced with, or you got you got Mitchell for him to produce that record. And you did that in LA, but it's a very Australian sounding album. And I suppose he did the Crowded House stuff as well. Was that a deliberate attempt to kind of get a more clean sonic sound? Or was it just by virtue of signing to EMI and you could get a name producer?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, we signed to EMI after the first record. The first record was released through Shock, which people might not remember. But they were basically like a... And a little indie operation that licensed local bands and helped them release records. Um, and they did a great job. And then EMI signed us, which meant that there was a budget. And yeah, uh, which you know, and as there was a budget, there was talks of producers. And the only producer I really knew, apart from you know Phil Spector, who was probably in jail and also <laughs> a, a terrible person um was Mitchell Froome who made those first three Crowded House records and I loved and I still love Crowded House and the way that those songs are arranged some of the production is a little is a little dated um yeah but a bit of 80s, also it? yeah a lot of that 80s stuff but as you you know you might be able to tell if you're somewhat familiar with anything I've done I'm, I'm also pretty charmed by that stuff so um I think that Crowded House got the balance of that uh, singer-songwriter thing in the '80s, um, the '80s sound, that kind of like ethereal, dramatic '80s, um, cold reverbs and big, spooky synths and stuff that I love. So he nailed that, and I, if I had my way, I wanted it to sound more like Crowded House, you know. But he was just like, no, 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 let's let's cut it down. In fact. That second record, which is called Great Barrier Grief... Excellent name, by the way. Thank you very much. <laughs> Probably <laughs> sounds closer to the record that I've just made, Dizzy Spell, than anything else because it was just... Yeah, Mitchell encouraged me to break it down to its um, like primal elements, the guitar, acoustic guitar, electric guitar, bass and drums, and fuck all else, you know. Um, and like I said at the time, I kind of wish we had have gone a little bit more Crowded of the house <laughs> just because I was such... And am such a fan and those... Arrangements And those records sound incredible. But um, I learned a lot from working with Mitchell. And um, we keep in contact. And, in fact, uh, I sent him... Because I made this record without re- this dizzy spell, this new one, without really telling anyone apart from my friend who helped me set up the equipment. And the first person I sent it to was was Mitchell Froome, who was in Melbourne touring with Crowded House. He's joined the, the touring band doing keyboards and other clever stuff. We went out for dinner. I told him about it, and I sent him the record. And he went back to his hotel that very night because it's the kind of guy he is. And he listened to it, and also, like the kind of guy he is, he immediately called me and and um, lent me some some very kind words and some uh, very wise words too. And so I made a few tweaks here and there. And um, all that's to say is just we're, we're still friends, and I still value his opinion. And he's one of the most generous and, and clever people I've I've ever met.
0: Well, you co-wrote a song. With him as well later on didn't you
1: yeah that's right um it was actually on the last oh record cafe oblivion and it's yeah 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 it's called 1050 and um just like a fun little thing he was fooling around with on his metronome um sorry metronome how funny i've got the <laughs> gary Jules in my head on his Mellotron, which is like a early 60s uh well early synthesizer from the 60s which used analog tape loops uh it's a very it's an iconic sound, you know, yeah, the, the Strawberry Fields Forever sound. Yeah. yeah, exactly. There you go. Um, and he was—he has one of the original tape machines, uh, sorry, original Mellachrons and and the tape loops. Uh, and he was fooling around with something new. And he sent—he's, you know, we were emailing each other, and I think it was just like, "What are you working on?" And he said, "Well, I got this little idea. What do you think?" And yeah, we wrote that on the internet. <laughs> he sent me the <laughs> files, and I um, I finished it off with Scott Horscroft up in at the Grove in, in Sydney. Um, and Scott Horscroft, I should add, is apart from Mitchell, is the producer I've worked with most and keep in contact with the most. And another very generous and and clever person who, um, yeah, who I admire a great deal and have learned a lot from. Yeah, he makes very lush records, Scott Horscroft. Like, yeah, he does, doesn't he? He actually probably, but in a more modern way, he probably is making something closer to that big lush crowded house sound that I was initially attracted to.
0: Yeah, yeah, mm. I would agree. Like he's work with Sleepy Jackson. For example, exactly. it's very much that sound. Totally. So, you released A Modest Proposal, which, as far as I can tell,
1: isn't on this album. Mm hmm.
0: Why, why is that? Did you just <laughs> why? Yeah. Call it? So, yeah.
1: A Modest Proposal is the first song I wrote after completing Dizzy Spell. And I still had all the microphones and the gear set up. Um, and I, I wrote that. And I was like, well, rather than just bank that and wait until I have a collection of X amount of songs and make second. Alexander Gow record I'll record it I'll you know everything's set up I'll I'll record it and I've taught myself how to use a tape machine and so I went ahead and recorded it and I was you know pleased and and then um I started thinking about releasing Dizzy Spell and um I got a bit nervous and I am a bit nervous about it to be honest uh i'm nervous about playing again i'm nervous about releasing music it's been a long time despite the fact that i put that perfect moment record out over the pandemic i didn't do any shows i kind of like took it as an opportunity to hide away i think i tried a couple of gigs and then lockdowns and such ruined that fun and, and then i just i decided to kind of um to take that as an opportunity to, to not play anymore um, because for me the, the, the true joy is, is, is the writing and the arranging and um, sometimes the playing feels like a bit of a chore and I think that's what I'm learning as I get older which is because I'm a very nervous, anxious person. So, um, uh,
0: Well, it's a completely different skill set as well. It's performance oh, yeah. as opposed to like arranging and writing which can be very mm. kind of meticulous
1: and it's very internal yeah exactly right and that's the kind of I suppose that speaks to my personality but you know like I do have that whatever that that 20% of me is capable of that performance and entertainment and um and um uh, I'm always surprised that when I do play that how, how easy I find it and how well you know capable I am at, at it um but I think I started that, that rant that rant about being nervous being in the context of a modest proposal, the song, and, and that's because um the the link there is that rather I was nervous about releasing the first single from Dizzy Spell and having a lot of pressure and I'm I'm very aware that in the modern music industry and environment and with the way that we consume music and the fact that the Austral- there's very little Australian media out there that's able to invest time and resources in in talking about music despite uh, which is why i appreciate this this chat nathan um that like there would be a lot of pressure on the first single because it's the first very purposeful intentional and and it is very intimate like piece of work i've done since the last oh mercy record which was probably four years ago yeah
0: 2018 tiny,
1: tiny bit more yeah well there you go um and to relieve that pressure i just thought well hey why don't i just release this as a bit of an introduction and say, hey guys, you know, watch this space. I'll be releasing more music soon. Um, and and to take a bit of pressure off that first single. So I don't think of a modest proposal as a single. It's more just like, hey, um, I'm doing music again. It sounds like this. This is the palette uh, and keep an ear out. And, and by the time I do put this first single out uh, on July 19, um you know, it'll, uh, I'm per- maybe it's just, it was probably all about me. Maybe I'll feel a little less pressure and, and nervous about the whole thing. So that's, that's, just, that's what it was. And what will be the first single? A song called In the Grip of Something, which oh, is yeah. a real bit of an anti-single single. The whole record's like um, a kind of record out of time, you know. Is that the one uh, that you sing kind of a falsetto in? That's exactly right, Yeah, memory. Mm, track three. Um you know, this is a record that was made on an old tape machine and I'm using old instruments and I'm doing something which feels antiquated, which is, you know, conventional singer-songwriting. Um, and I've, I've produced something which is a collection of songs to, and it, purposefully to be consumed as a collection of songs, as an album. Um, so it's an album out of time because no one very few people have the time and capacity or interest in consuming full records anymore and I make no judge. there's no judgment there it just is what it is and instead I'm I'm asking quite a bit of the listener I'm saying hey here's some subtle intimate but I hope quite seductive songs and I hope that you can listen to it in as a body of work blah 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 and there's not a lot of there's not a lot of bombast on the record you know there's no big backbeats and, and such and With all that in mind, I was like, this is not a record with traditional radio singles on it. So why didn't I pick the least radio single song on it, (laughs) which is the one with no drums and it's piano acoustic and pedal steel and me singing in, in, you know, double tracked falsetto. Um, But, uh, you know, kind of a catchy song in its own right, I suppose.
0: Yeah, I really enjoy how the first two songs as well, you seem to be singing in a different register than I've heard you sing kind of a mm. bit more low, a bit more croonerish. It reminds me of that Dylan Nashville Skyline switch where he just
1: suddenly started. Yeah, when he started singing like a Muppet. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not what I mean, but... Yeah, I know, of course, I know, yeah. Well, did. I tell you what, it's the same, thanks for noticing, it's the same register, that, you know. Remember how I mentioned earlier that uh, I feel comfortable with the way that I'm writing and with myself and all of that? Well, yeah. part of that is that I, f- I think I figured out a way to use my voice in a way that feels sounds like the way that I always imagine it should sound like. And so it's got actually nothing to do with the register that I'm singing in and more just, um, it's more resonant because I'm singing quietly. Yeah. So, that makes um, sense. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not pushing and I'm not like, there's no stress on my vocal cords. Uh, and which I've learned uh, when you sing like that, which is an attractive sound for lots of singers, you know, you listen to Dylan on the like, highway 61 or whatever it's it's a very thin sound when you stress and stretch your vocal cords um for some singers and, yeah. and it was for me uh but when you s- when i'm only singing about as loudly as i'm talking to you now and it's, it's as loud as i talk full stop and um which is going to be probably a nightmare when i have to play it live but uh, <laughs> what that means is that uh it my voice is more resonant, and you can pick up more of, you know, I don't know, the, the chest cavity and the nasal cavity and stuff, and it makes for a richer sound. And then when I heard it back, I didn't do that intentionally. I just kind of started singing like that. And then, but when I listened to it back, I was like, wow, I wish I um kind of wish I had to figure that out 10 years ago, but all <laughs> 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 good.
0: Well, it's a very gentle album as well, this one. True. Yeah. So yeah. I that, think it that's very true. suits. Um, you mentioned like the back to the singer-songwriter thing, Deep Heat was a kind of right angle of sorts. I listened to that Mm. record again today, and it kind of doesn't strike me as being as much of a 180 as I seem to recall it being. Mm. It it kind of fits into the discography. Was that Mm. something where you kind of went, I've done the same thing for two records I need to show off other bows or were you like just legitimately getting interested in different types of sounds and productions what kind of drove that if you can recall yeah
1: probably the former so that would have come out when i was i would have written that when i was like 24 or 5 or something um and it's interesting that you say now that looking back it actually doesn't feel um yeah, like an anomaly at all. As, no. un, as uncomfortable as a, yeah, as a, like a, yeah, that's right, as a, as a 180, um, like as you put it. I think that's because you m- might be considering like the next two Oh Mercy records and maybe even a touch of the perfect moment um, context that I, those records that I released after help make sense of DP'd a bit more. Yeah, that's a good um, point. Right. But at the time, I just made. I'd made that fun first record with Miles and Thomas Savage Miles Wooden Panics Thomas Savage great songwriter uh, and Thomas and I made that first record together and Thomas also contributed on on a few songs in the second record Great Barrier Grief very talented guy now the first record was an accident you know there were demos that they turned into a record because Miles was so clever the second record was an exercise in restraint much like this recent one I've made the most recent one I have made um, but Man, I was twenty-four or five, and I, you know, I loved and still love, you know, um, the, I don't know the the Clash and Roxy music and um, and like dub music, and I was interested in extending my my writing as well as my interest in production, and I was hell bent on not being pigeonholed as. And I don't want to be mean-spirited and I, and I was. I remember that I was in interviews in my 20s. I'd actually name check bands that I didn't want to be pigeonholed with and that wasn't very kind because who cares? But um, there were a bunch of bands that were very popular at the time that I felt that were too cute and too mild and maybe one-dimensional. That's what I mean. They were one-dimensional in in my view. They, they probably weren't. I should go back and listen to them again. But at the time, I thought those groups that I was being lumped in with were one-dimensional and I didn't want to be... Part of that school because I thought I had a lot more to offer, and and so Deep Heat was me trying to express that and and prove that to myself and and to them. And as you know, who would have thought I lost a lot of my fans? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I remember being in uh, doing the Deep Heat tour was was difficult. Um, I remember this one guy in Adelaide just kept on. He was front and center, and he kept on just between songs, just going, "Why." Why? There <laughs> was another guy in Perth that said, Gow, I don't want, I'm not going to, this is a particularly rude word. It's, C, it's the C word. He said, gal you see, you know. M- yeah, you uh, can, you can say it's fine. Okay, yeah. well, yeah. But anyway, that one, yeah, that that extreme C word, gal you see, you know. Uh, and then I, I had some people come up to the merch desk after and, and they were crying. And uh, listen, I'm making it sound like, we were the Beatles or something. We weren't. This is minor, minor stuff. But the point is that the people that were invested in my music, um, some of them, were were pretty upset about it. Which is, um, which was complete. I should have completely anticipated, and I did anticipate, and it was fine. But it, it also made for, uh, you know, it made things a little bit more difficult during that period.
0: Well, then you did. When we talk about love, which is kind of. Again, closer to the Great Barrier Reef. Sorry, I keep saying Great Barrier Reef. It's okay, <laughs> Great Barrier Grief. Sound was that you trying to step it back a bit, or was it just you'd kind of gotten that out of your system?
1: Oh uh, yeah, um, probably both. Um, so I would say that whereas Great Barrier Grief had very little production and effects, it was just very dry, bit of reverb, bit of compression. Um, when we talk about Love, use similar instrumentation but extended those sounds using effects like delays and um larger reverbs uh you know deliberate reverbs and and, and yeah. uh, introducing like synths and, and strings and, and things like that for a big lush sound you and I worked with Scott Horscroft who was you know the man for that job you you mentioned he made that Sleepy Jackson's record and so I guess I had a bit of that in my head um I had those Crowder House records in my head too and and I had a bunch of songs up my sleeve that I felt like they wanted for that big kind of melancholy, warm production. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Do you and, bank um, songs at all? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. For this, for Disney Spell, I wrote about 40 or 50. Um, I remember writing about 40 or 50 for when we talk about love, for sure. In fact, I think I wrote more. I was living in Nashville at the time, um, just, which is very sounds very indulgent, but uh, I was lucky enough to have a tiny bit of money in the bank and just kind of shacked up there for half a year or more um, making demos and um, ruining a romantic relationship and writing about that in real time.
0: Yeah, it sounds very kind of heartbroken, that record. Yeah,
1: I mean, just that, like, um, I don't know. What do they say? Like, maybe, like, when you, you know, if you first love kind of, it feels like the end of the world when that goes wrong when you're, what, 15, 16, 17. But that was, like, the first adult kind of relationship that i that fell apart and i i was responsible for it um and the i think the realization of that responsibility was terrifying and um so and you know i intentionally isolated myself from the other side of the world and had a lot of time to reflect and write and uh, and and that i did yeah and you got a pointy Aria award for it so it's all good. i did get a, yeah i did get a, yeah <laughs> i mean I, yeah i would have much preferred to have a like a, a um meaningful uh respectful relationship <laughs> with that person that uh than an aria but yeah. i'll um i'll take the aria regardless yeah what's next in
0: terms of like do you have a concrete release date for the album or are you still figuring that out
1: yeah so this is definitely like the earliest um chit chat i've done yeah. around dizzy spell and i appreciate that nathan um but yeah i've got a little plan going on i've that Next single, In the Grip of Something, will come out July 19. I'll make uh, a little video for that and, you know, um, put its second single out in September and the record will come out in late October. um, And I'll do some launches a few weeks after that, I suppose. Um, And, yeah, I, I mean, I started writing this record, Dizzy Spell, 18 months ago now and I'm incredibly excited for people to hear it uh I'm excited for it to leave this bedroom it was written literally written recorded in in this room uh and it still feels very much like a presence in this room not in a hippie way but like um and the hippies are fine sorry um (laughs) not not in like a new age way they're not so fine um but I'm looking forward to uh, in fact, releasing a modest proposal the other day just felt so fantastic. Like, here's, um, you know, it was the first thing, first kind of purposeful singer songwriter thing I'd done for a very long time. And, uh, and I'm, like I said, I'm proud of these songs. And it's, I am asking a lot of the listener because it's intimate and it's minimalist. But I feel like these are some of the strongest songs, strongest songs I've written. Uh, and yeah, I, I can't wait to release it and I can't wait to do some, some shows. And you got Graham Lee on slide as well from the
0: Triffids, which must have been a thrill.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. Is like, uh, despite like not doing any of my much of my own touring over the last few years, I have been doing these shows with the f- friends of David McComb, who um, are basically the remaining members of the Triffids. Sometimes including Elsie and Jill, the Western Australian members. Sometimes including Marty Casey when he's not doing Bad Seed stuff. But um often with members of the Black Eyed Susans who are like an affiliate of Triffids band. Phil Kakulis, um, one of the, the members and one of the songwriters of the Black Eyed Susans was a founding member of the Triffids, I believe they're all best friends you know western australian friends anyhow so we've been doing these shows playing David's songs recording some of David's songs on a, on a record called the lost songs of david mccomb and, and touring and so yeah become pals with all the those Triffords dudes and black eyed susan's people and um oh, that's really cool yeah and singing one of my favorite songwriters if not my favorite australian songwriter songs live has been an, an incredible fluke and a thrill and um and therefore it was uh fairly easy. I mean, I should remind myself how extraordinary it is that I was able to have Graham uh, play on the record, play that beautiful pedal still. Um, but yeah, he's only a text message away these days. <laughs>
0: that's that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, before we go, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about Ken Doan. How did that come mm-hmm. about, him doing the artwork for your Great Barrier Grief?
1: Yeah, uh, well, I, um, I've um i managed to, um I've been very lucky to, to have artwork by Ken Doan and some of my other favourite Australian artists, including Albert Tucker and and Rennie Ellis, you know, some of the real greats of Australian art. And as for the Great Barrier Grief cover, I was very focused on Australian identity for that record and despite making it in California, in fact, maybe because I made it in California, I was even that hyper-focused, you know, you get that perspective when you're you're halfway around the world and that perspective focuses. Um, And therefore... I guess I wanted to make an iconic Australian record, and you know, someone out there might be rolling their eyes, but geez, isn't that the right of a 23-year-old songwriter to try to have lofty ambitions, like to make an a an, an iconic Australian record? You know, if you if you're not you should be aiming for that. You should be if you're not if you're not dreaming that big, then maybe um you need to um check in with yourself there. I don't know. At least that's that was my personal experience, right? And so I wanted. To marry that with an with an iconic Australian image, and you know, and t- t- in order to do that, I needed to find an iconic Australian artist, and um, because of his links with like the the commercial, the, the commercial element of of his uh, art practice, he is iconic. You know, his work is ubiquitous, and um, it's so recognisable. His his style and his name, and character, and so I thought, I, if I can manage to. To snag a Doan cover, I'll just be that'll that'll be like the cherry on top after working with Mitchell Froome and and you know I guess um Ken saw uh, you know what I I suppose this is what it was Ken admired slash was charmed by that naive ambition surely that was it and when I when I went asking he said yeah absolutely let's do it you know if I 35 went and asked you know without knowing him I'm not sure how he how he would respond he's a very decent and um patient person so i'm sure he'd hear me out but um i think that he was probably engaged and maybe even attracted to that you know the lofty aspirations of a 23 year old person um who came hat in hand asking for his help and uh, (laughs) provided the beautiful cover well just as a side note i love the song keith street
0: I reckon that's like an thank iconic you. Australian song that should have got way more attention and I'm still expecting it to pop up
1: on Smooth FM any day now. <laughs> well, um, hopefully it pops up sometime soon and I can um f- put some dollars in the coffers and make another record. Yeah, <laughs> Get that, that
0: Smooth FM money. Yeah. Get an eight track <laughs> this time, maybe. Yeah. Ah, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure.
1: Yeah, I appreciate your time too, Nathan, and um, thanks to the, the kind words at the end there and... uh. Yeah, uh, I've enjoyed listening to your podcasts. You know, a big fan of Robert Forces, and um, yeah. I look forward to listening to future episodes.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much. Um, hopefully you can listen to the one you're on.
1: <laughs> you know what? <laughs> if I'll be avoiding any of yours, it'll, it'll be that one. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, I <laughs> totally get it. Yeah. Treat, treat me kindly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well do. And that was Alexander Gao. Dizzy Spell will be out October 27 and you can listen to the first single from that in the grip of something right now. And if you want to check Alex out live, he's playing a residency at The Gem in Collingwood. That's every Sunday in August from 4pm till 6pm. It's free entry and he'll have a different backing band each week. My guest next week will be Sarah McLeod from The Super Jesus. Until then... <laughs>